Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 43, Jesus says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes out and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside speaking, seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and he said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In chapter 12 of Matthew's gospel, those of you who have been with us, you've discovered since the beginning of the chapter, he's faced unrelenting opposition. We might expect opposition from enemies, from foes. But when opposition comes from the least expected quarter, your friends and your family, it can be sometimes intimidating. But Jesus will continue to face the opposition with love and patience and truth. In this chapter, the religious leaders, remember, have accused Jesus of being in league with the devil. Remember, they have specifically stated that the ability that Jesus had to perform miracles at the beginning of the chapter and help the demon-possessed person was because, according to them, Jesus is in league with the devil. This prompts a demand from the religious leaders that Jesus should give them a sign. And Jesus says, no sign will be given you except for the sign of Jonah. And he also basically says this, that Jesus has likened the generation to an evil and wicked one because they insist on a sign. And so he will use this illustration about his own generation. He will liken the generation to a demon-possessed person in verses 43 through 45. One demon is driven out, and because that demon is unable to find another person to possess the spirit, or to possess, the spirit returns with seven more wicked, malevolent, evil, more malignant than himself. Jesus has healed a man who was blind and mute. He's healed a man who was possessed in verses 22 and 23. The image is fresh in their minds. And the religious leaders, like I said, are at an absolute loss to see that it is Jesus who's driving out the darkness <clears throat> by the power of God, the permission of God, of God and for the purpose, <clears throat> excuse me, of advancing the plan of God. Got something in my throat. I feel like a presidential candidate in the midst of a debate. All right, back to the text. 
one of the claims that Christianity makes is that Jesus changes people. That God in Christ is able to transform someone. And when I was preparing this message, I thought back to a television show that was on many years ago. I don't even know how long ago. It was called ER, which stood for Emergency Room. It came on on Thursday nights, and I, I loved the movie, or the, 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 the series. And it was filled with all kinds of memorable episodes, but there was one episode in particular where an emergency medical technician is bringing in a man. He has been traumatized. He is suffering from a, 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 a severe blow to the head. And the attending physician is a, is a gifted young black woman. And when they're removing the person's shirt, there is a prominent tattoo that indicates that he seems to be a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And the woman, when she sees this, this swastika and the Ku Klux Klan symbol, she pauses, she steps away, and, and then she, she basically says to her supervisor that she felt uncomfortable treating the patient. And the supervisor said, has this patient threatened you or harmed you? And she said, doctor, the patient's unconscious. He goes, exactly, treat the patient. And so as she's treating the patient, he eventually regains consciousness. And so when he regains consciousness, he sees the, the, the physician, the black physician, and he sees the blonde nurse. He calls for the blonde nurse to stitch him up. And the physician immediately thinks that he's doing this because he's prejudiced. And the man says to her, are you saved? She said, what are you talking about? He said, are you saved? Have you received Christ as your savior? You see, I was ashamed. I was ashamed that you would see my tattoo and I was ashamed of what it meant. You see, there was a different time and a different circumstance of, of my life, but I've accepted Christ as my Lord and my Savior. He's helped me see my blindness and my anger and my bitterness and, and, and my ignorance and my prejudice. And I want you to know that Jesus has changed my life. Have you been saved? And I'm watching this riveted because how many times do you see a, a national television show giving the gospel? He asks the, the, the physician this question, do you really believe that Jesus can save someone? You know, in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23, the prophet writes, can the Ethiopian change his skin color or the leopard its spots? The prophet wrote, neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. And so again, the question, can people really change? And so Jesus is using this statement to illustrate an important point, both personally and culturally, but it boils down to the deception of self-reformation. Look what it says in verse 43. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man... He goes through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. We know very little about unclean spirits. 
the Bible tells us just enough about hell so that you don't want to go there. The Bible tells us just enough about heaven so that that's the only place where you want to go. The Bible gives us a true picture of the origin, the nature, and the purpose, and the destiny of demons. Unclean spirits almost certainly refers to these demons, or what some people have characterized as fallen angels. The word unclean, as it's used in the New Testament, doesn't really capture the meaning of the original word, both in its Hebrew origin and its New Testament Greek context. The word means filthy, disgusting. But there is implicit in the word something that is filthy and disgusting and terrifying and harmful and destructive. And so when Jesus makes reference to bringing evil companions more wicked than himself, we discover something, at least in part, that there seems to be a hierarchy of wickedness in demons. In Matthew chapter 8, Mark chapter 5, Luke chapter 8, all reveal that demons can inhabit people's bodies and that the biblical solution, the, the New Testament solution to the problem of demonization or possession was exorcism. Many of you are familiar with Mark chapter 5 where a man is in the tombs. He has this unhealthy preoccupation with the dead. He cuts himself and when he sees Jesus coming from a distance, he says, what do you have to do with me? And of course, many of you know the memorable scene where Jesus casts the demons out of the man and they go into a herd of swine. That's the first mention of deviled ham in the Bible. <laughs> Sorry. I'm trying to be serious, and then all of a sudden, I sort of backslide a little bit. But what we're left with is the impression that real demons can really inhabit people. And they can inhabit animals, apparently. And so when Jesus says that once they exit their human host, they apparently travel in some other dimension... Spirit beings don't necessarily need food or water. If they do need food or water, we're unaware of it. But they appear to have the ability to sense the sensual phenomenon of their host body. And so dry places or waterless places seems to speak of something that is barren or dry, or a desert, or desolations. And so after expulsion, demons seek some measure of safety. Now this is interesting to me. They're seeking a measure of safety. What do they have to be afraid of? I think what they have to be afraid of is an eventual judgment. It says that they're looking and they're afraid, and they're looking for rest. And I doubt if they find either. But in verse 44, look what it says. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And he come, and when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, put in order. In this illustration, the unclean spirit's home is the host body of its poor victim. 
when the demon can't find a suitable place, it decides to go home. The reference to my house implies access, ownership, possession. Perhaps the demon felt he could still gain access or have a new entrance. And the fact that the house is, according to Jesus, empty, swept, put in order, implies some sort of change, perhaps even some genuine moral reform. The person experiences a temporary freedom from the demon, a temporary freedom from the sin, if you will. The emphasis, of course, is on temporary. Being free from demons or sin or self also requires submission to God and empowerment by the Holy Spirit by cultivating the character of Christ. Clearly, being without a demon is a good thing. Not being tormented, if you will, by drugs or alcohol or addictions, all of those things are a good thing. And by the way, I don't begrudge a single person, not one single person, who says, I would rather be sober than addicted. Well, good for you. But sobriety is different from salvation. The point is that people make decisions all the time to be a better person. And so they want to be a better husband or some people want to be a better wife, better friend, better follower. And again, (laughs) there are two times in the life of an individual typically After New Year's, that first Sunday following New Year's, okay, this is the year I'm going to be different. This is the year I'm going to change. This is the year that those thoughts, these words, those things, those things that I've been preoccupied, this is not going to be a part of my life anymore on the Sunday after Easter. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to be a different person. People make vows. They take oaths. They make decisions. And they may do it for any number of reasons. They don't want to go to jail. They fear disease, social stigma. People attempt to rid themselves of all kinds of habits, sexual addictions, alcohol addictions, drug addictions. And I don't begrudge a single person who wants all of that gone. But they're not motivated because of a profound sense of guilt or because they've offended God. They're desperately trying to hold on to their marriage. They're trying to hold on to the respect of their kids. They're trying to hold on to what few friends they may have left. But self-cleansing through will, power, or support programs, no matter how meaningful or positive the motivation is, can sometimes be impermanent. The Lord Jesus doesn't come to reform the sinner, but to transform the saint. And he doesn't come simply to reform the culture or reform the society or make the generation a better generation. I can't say with certainty, but I believe some of the people that Jesus has ministered to up until this time in the book of Matthew, Jesus has touched them. He's loved them. He's ministered to them. He's delivered many of them. 
But I'm going to suggest to you that some of them don't enter into a right relationship with Christ. They don't believe God. They don't turn from their sin. They don't embrace the Savior. In other words, they're trying to live a life based on a cultural or a civilizational change. They want to think differently, but they have no intention of embracing Jesus or the gospel. Even Christians sometimes get swept clean only to return to a life of drugs and violence and addiction. You see, being empty is not the same as being full. And so some Christians even say, there's a sense of emptiness. And you try to fill it with materialism or sensualism or fame or money. Pick whatever poison you want to pick. Some Christians refuse fellowship with the saints and opt for friendship with this world and its corrupt, evil system. We have to be willing to surrender to Jesus, to embrace his offer of grace and mercy and forgiveness. We don't want a temporary relief from disease or demonic deception, but the freedom, the freedom that comes not just simply being able to choose a healthy lifestyle, but the freedom to love the Lord and obey him. When the ten lepers were healed, only one returned to render thanks and praise. Only one received real wholeness, sweet salvation, real relationship. Jesus wants to do more than just sweep my house. He wants to occupy every room in your life. And so in verse 45, when it says, then he, the, the spirit, goes out and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. It's interesting when Jesus makes that statement and then he gives the application immediately. The, the most important sentence obviously being the last. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Jesus is pointing out that the application is national. And I'm going to suggest to you personal. In what way? Jesus is illustrating the dangers of reformation. In what way? Remember, he's been accused of being demonically possessed. In what way? Remember, the Pharisees say, we don't want you. We don't need you. We are happy being what we are. Good, decent, moral, God-loving people. Guess what? We live in Jerusalem. Guess what? We read the Bible in Hebrew. Guess what? We follow all of the commandments. Guess what? We give to the poor. These are good and decent people. These aren't drug addicts and pornographers. So what is he saying? The struggle against Satan can easily turn to surrender to Satan when God's solution to the problem of sin is rejected. I want to be a different person. Good. I want to be a good and decent and moral person. Good for you. 
I want to be a good, moral, decent person apart from God, apart from Christ, apart from the gospel, apart from grace, apart from his compassion and love. I, don't, I want to be saved, but not by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. The expression, enter and dwell there in verse 45. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. It means more than just visit. It implies a permanent home. This is the same verb, by the way, that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 17. When we read in Ephesians 3 17... That Christ may dwell, same word, in your hearts through faith, both here and there, the implication is that the dwelling is fixed, permanent, forever. This should shock you. It should surprise you. It should, in, 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 in some ways, terrify you. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Where Jesus doesn't live demons are free to live where Jesus doesn't live demons are free to live why is that important the reason why it becomes important is because Satan's servants demons can go and live in a reformed but Christless heart. Now they're free to indulge their host's fantastic delusion. You might be thinking that the demon goes back in and brings in seven more wicked demons and now they're going to be the worst person in the world. But I'm going to suggest to you that the demons that he drags with him are the demon of self-sufficiency, the demon of hypocrisy, the demon of pride, the demon of religiosity. Why is, again, all of that important? Like the leper who has no sensitivity to pain whatsoever, the leper will step off the curb, twist his ankle, and now bone and tissue and sinew rub up against one another. There's no sense of pain, and so he has absolutely no idea the damage that he's doing to his own body. And in a competition between... immorality and hypocrisy. Hypocrisy will always win. John MacArthur writes, quote, a religious, self-righteous, reformed person is subject to Satan in a way that a guilt-ridden, immoral person is not because his very morality blinds him to his basic sinful condition and need. He is perfectly satisfied with his empty house, thinking that freedom from outward manifestations of sin is freedom from its presence and power and damnation, unquote. That's why it's almost insufferable to be around an ex-smoker or an ex-drinker. Hey, don't get me wrong. If you smoke and you stop smoking... You drink and you stop drinking. But stopping doesn't mean that now you've been set on God's green earth to make life miserable for everybody around you. 
Because the truth, Jesus is suggesting that this person is worse off than he was ever before. Things have never been worse for this particular person. The worst thing in the world, you might think, well, is it to be a drinking, drugging, sexually addicted, wicked person? Apparently not. The worst thing in the world is to pretend to be a Christian when you're not. It's pretend to be just fine, just the way you are, without God, without Christ, without grace. A person who hopes to be good without Jesus, a person who hopes to be good without the gospel, a person who hopes to be good without the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit will fail. And at some point, the mask will come off. The heart will leak out its toxic filth. And if we preach good morals and preach good behavior, and even if we preach good biblical behavior, apart from salvation in Christ, we're going to drive people further and further and further from God. It's easier to preach Jesus to a person who's overwhelmed by their sense of sin and their, their sense of guilt, their sense of shame, the sense that they've offended God than the person who's overwhelmed by a false sense of self-sufficiency, of self-righteousness. The primary application here seems to be the last sentence in the verse. Look what it says. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. What is he talking about? John the Baptist has come on the scene and said, repent of your sin and turn to God and do those things that are going to be pleasing to God. Jesus shows up and he says, God sent me. God sent me with a message. That all of the things that have been revealed to you by the prophets in the past is coming true in the person of the Messiah. I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus isn't, isn't saying that his generation is demonically possessed, although there's good evidence that the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. Jesus is speaking to his generation. Now, remember the context. He's been healing the sick. He's been raising the dead. He's been binding up the brokenhearted. He's been setting the captives free. He's been sweeping house. This last week, my Jonathan did an extraordinary thing. He went into my office and he cleaned the whole thing. You know what I thought when I saw my cleaned office? I thought about Benjamin Franklin, of all things. Benjamin Franklin, after the Constitutional Congress, said, you have a constitutional republic. Keep it if you can. The reason why I thought that is I go, I have a clean office. Keep it if I can. I'm going to have to work to keep it clean. You have to understand something. In the early history of the Jewish people, they were in constant rebellion. They were in constant disobedience. They were constantly tempted to idolatry. They faced all kinds of challenges and difficulties. The northern kingdom actually apostatized. The, the southern kingdom was taken into captivity for 70 years. 
And you know what happened in those 70 years? The desire for idolatry was driven from them. 70 years in Babylonian captivity is sort of like spiritual rehab. If you want to go to a place where you can know God and honor God and love God and obey God, then just go out into that world. Just walk out the door and go anywhere. Turn on any television. Go on any internet site and you're going to see a constant invitation to disregard what the Bible says, to disregard what, what, it, what it says about life and about love and about what it means to have a right relationship with God. The nation had to experience a vital spiritual relationship with God and Jesus wants to provide that. And so he's warning them about a group of people who simply opt for reformation. A mere change of behavior isn't good enough. God insists on a change of heart and a change of mind. Again, think about what's happening. Jesus is driving back the darkness. Jesus is cleaning house. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's preaching the gospel to the poor. And many people are repenting. And many people are turning from their sin. And many people are coming back to life. But the vast majority of people are not. Just like in your life. Imagine a person says to you, Easter was last time. What are you doing at church? This isn't Easter. And by the way, thanks to everyone who came two weeks in a row. They're going to arrest Jesus eventually. They're going to kill him. And he's going to come back to life. And by the way, after he comes back to life, there's going to be a couple of generations of Jewish people. And the temple's going to be destroyed. The sacrificial system is going to go away. The Jewish people are going to be scattered. They're going to march into 19 centuries of isolation and wandering. They're going to come to the 20th century where there's going to be first a world war and then a second world war and then a holocaust and then a decadent society and then moral corruption. It's the story that Jesus is telling right at this very moment. The story serves as a perpetual warning for us if you're not filled with God's Holy Spirit, if you don't believe God's message, then the chances are that the only thing that is going to create an opportunity for good is for you to accept God's plan and God's purpose. The only real protection offered to any generation against evil is the power of God in the presence of Christ. I've said it before and I'll say it again. When Alexis de Tocqueville visited this country in 1840, he went around and there was a great awakening taking place in America. And Francis de Tocqueville said, America is great because America is good. And then he prophetically said, America will cease to be great when America ceases to be good. Ladies and gentlemen, that day has come. In the last 50 years, it's become increasingly clear to me 
that even though our country may have been founded on biblical principles, every aspect of our culture and society has made the decision to depart from biblical principles. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. We can encourage godly behavior over wicked behavior, and we should. But we are officially part of a minority culture. We are part of a culture that now denies those values that we have grown up with and has effectively forsaken them. We may again invite our culture to embrace law and justice and fairness and freedom and to deal decently in relationships. We can even point to them that the Bible is clear that moral behavior is better than immoral behavior. We can point to them that in order to be a better husband, a better wife, a better father, a better parent, a better child, a better citizen, the Bible offers principle after principle after principle. But the truth is without a right relationship with God and Christ, self-righteousness becomes more dangerous than blatant rebellion and immorality. You might say, how could you say that? Because mere religion, mere morals, mere outward righteousness is one of the great hindrances to the gospel of Jesus. Let me just put it to you this way. If every marijuana law was struck down, would that make people not want to smoke marijuana? This morning, our next door neighbor, the liquor store was robbed probably about six o'clock, somebody came into this parking lot, picked up a rock, threw it through their window, smashed out the glass, went in and robbed the liquor store and then took off. Do you wonder why they robbed the liquor store and not us? Why? Could they have just as easily thrown a rock through our door and go, let's steal all of Gino Geraci's tapes from the media center. <laughs> let's go and see if there's any Bibles in there. That we can hand out. Do you realize how dangerous it is? Dangerous it is living next to a church. By the way, if we, like in prohibition, completely made it illegal to drink, would it take away the desire to drink? If prostitution were illegal everywhere, always, sex trafficking, would it take away the desire on the part of people to act out? The answer is no. You see, the Pharisees would have described themselves as promise keepers to God's law. They were committed to strict standards of dress and conduct and washing, morals, ethics, daily living. They had a complex set of rules and regulations that governed every single aspect of their life. They were the ultimate moral majority, but they made traditions and basically departed from the word of God. And as they departed from the word of God, they went further and further and further from God. Again, John MacArthur writes, they were so self-sufficient and self-righteous that when God himself came among them in human form, they rejected and vilified and finally crucified him. There's also a personal application. It's 
not good enough to clean up our own house. It seems to me that we have to invite someone to occupy that house. And Jesus warns that you won't remain a vacuum. We know that nature abhors a vacuum. Your heart will be filled with something. And so, Jesus told the religious leaders who were proud of their clean homes, he said that on the outside they were like whitewashed tombs, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. So tell me. Tell me about your heart this morning. What's in your heart? What's inside of your heart? Is it full? Is it empty? Is it broken? Is it healed? Is it full of light or is it full of darkness? Is it full of terror, fear? In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus speaking and inviting the church at Laodicea said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and dine with him, and he with me. Jesus knows the circumstance of your heart and still has compassion and still wants fellowship. Early one morning, a fire broke out in a house on a narrow street and the alarm was sounded by policemen on duty and before the fire engines could arrive on the scene, the flames were leaping into the air and suddenly there was a young man and he was in the upper stories of the building still in his pajamas and firemen quickly placed a ladder against the burning building but to the consternation of everyone, he refused to come down. He said, I've got to get dressed first. I've got to go back in and I've got to put on some clothes. And they begged him and they pleaded with him. They said, just what you know, come as you are. Come as you are. But to no avail. And from below they tried to ascend the stairs, but they were turned back when the wind fanned the flames into just a wall of fire. And when the rescuer tried to enter through the window, the wind came up and then set him back. And again, the stairs just suddenly collapsed and buried him in the ruins. But there's a much greater ruin that awaits the person who refuses to flee from the wrath that will come. Many people reject God's provision of salvation and safety in Jesus because they get dressed up in clothes of self-righteousness and religion, but Jesus is insisting on a transformation at the most fundamental level your heart. And what's interesting to me is that's the promise of the Bible. That God is willing to give you a new nature and a new heart. 
The reason why I even bring this up is because this was my problem. When people would invite me to church or they would invite me to become a Christian, I said, you don't get it. I'm, I'm not good at being good. I'm terrible at it. I felt being a Christian was like bowling. I mean, I roll the ball down the alley and it goes into the gutter and that's not fun. I can't knock any of the pins over. And I certainly can't do it frame after frame after frame. And I'm not good at being good. And I'm fairly good at being bad. Until someone said to me, come as you are. Come as you are. God will give you a new heart, new desires, a new way to live. You see, that's the danger of self-reformation. It's making a change, even a good change, even a powerful and positive change. But your heart remains empty. And an empty heart will eventually want to be filled with something. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for that person who's made every effort to do everything right and have been largely successful. But every once in a while, something leaks out, something terrible and something toxic. Their heart's never really been changed. Heavenly Father, I pray for the person who wants to know that they know that they know that their sins are forgiven and that Jesus is in their heart. And Heavenly Father, again, just like we learned today, demons can't dwell where Jesus is present. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that each and every person would accept your invitation, your offer of forgiveness and hope for everyone who trusts Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that in the quietness and privacy of every individual's heart, they could pray a simple prayer. Heavenly Father, come I believe that Jesus is the Lord, just like in the Camp Idrahaji video, that God came down from heaven in the person of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for my sin, and that that satisfying solution for my sin makes it possible to have friendship and fellowship with you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would forgive my sin that you would make me a new creature, just like the Bible says, that if any person's in Christ, they're a new creation. All the old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. Lord, I don't want to just make the decision to be different. I want to be different from the inside out. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every person who's prayed that prayer, that you would come into their heart and their life and that you would confirm your presence by joy unspeakable, peace unspeakable, 
life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.